You are listening to the Golf Science Lab podcast. I'm your host, Cordy Walker, and welcome back. Recently, we talked with Coach Mark Blackburn about how to a pro makes a swing change. I really enjoyed this episode and wanted to do something similar, but in kind of a different spin. So today we're going to talk about how a tour pro trains and works out. We're going to talk through some examples, routines, and concepts to understand. My name's Nick Randall. My background is strength and conditioning. I've worked in the Golf Queensland program the Golf Australia National Program and recently in 2016-2017 on the PGA Tour with initially the Australian, the young Australian Cameron Smith and then later with Jonas Blixt, Harris English and Matt Every for all of 2017. So we have an awesome guest to talk with today, Nick Randall. We're going to walk through some stories of tour pros, and I think that's actually the great place to start. We'll do that first, and then we will jump back and talk about his like whole process and strategy behind it. Jonas is a really interesting story. So Jonas came to me in, in October of 2016 um, with some pretty serious back issues. He just had a couple of cortisone injections to try and basically reduce some fairly strong neural pain that he'd um he was that was being elicited from a from herniated disc in his in his lumbar spine and um first step for jonas once he was sort of out of that acute pain stage was trying to build some awareness around his body movements he struggled quite a lot with his postural awareness and especially struggled with with control and awareness around his kind of lumbar spine and his, his, his sort of pelvis so we used the gravity fit equipment a lot with him at the start to first of all give him some awareness of how he was moving and the quality of his movement. For me, it was important for him to stabilize that lumbar segment so he didn't continue to stress the nerves that were being sort of um, were being pressed on by the herniated disc. So that was that was really important for me first up, and then we started to introduce some some other bits of gravity fit equipment that basically give you that what I said, what I talked about earlier, that axial load. So to try and stimulate the deep muscle system to, to start firing for him again, because generally when you've, got, when you've got pain in a certain part of the body, the neural connection to the deep muscles and the stabilizers in that area will, will, will really weaken it and in some cases almost completely shut down. And so you've got pain and you really need these postural muscles to, to help you out to, to stabilize the segments around where this pain is but they essentially switch off from a neural perspective, go on holiday, and then you're, you're left kind of exposed. And so it was really important to try, and stable, uh, to try and stimulate those muscles again, especially through that lumbar area and through the rest of his spine to get those deep muscles basically fired up again so he could hold good posture and, and take stress off that, that lumbar spine area. So that was where we started with Jonas, and then the rest of it was a, basically a, a slow journey back to doing some more complex movements because at first it was relatively static, um, relatively just controlled walking type movements. Then we would move into some body weight stuff and then we started to add load, make the movements more complex. And then eventually we worked back into actually full full gym and fully loaded movements um, over the course of about six months or so. And then he, he actually teamed up with Cam in uh, at the Zurich Classic last year when it was the first year that it had been run at a, as a pairs competition and they managed to take out the win, which was which is a really cool kind of redemption story for Jonas. I think in October he was wondering whether he should pull out of all the four series events and try and protect his back. 
As you can tell from Nick's voice, he is from Australia. Uh, and one of the players that came for the Australian squad over to the PGA Tour recently is Cameron Smith. We saw his name pop up here a lot in the 2018 Masters. Played really well, and he's been elite since his junior days. And Nick's been able to work with him uh, and train with him for a long time. Here's the full story of what they've been up to. Cam didn't have a lot of choice, actually, when we first started. He was in the Golf Australia National Program. Um, and he was also in the Golf Queensland, which is the a state in Australia. Uh, we was in their high performance program as a 16-year-old. He was one of the best junior players in the country, actually one of the best amateurs full stop in the country. And I started working with his golf coach. And um, we got invited, both of us got invited down to a, um, a camp, like a training camp at Moona Links Golf Course down in Melbourne on the Mornington Peninsula. And it was being put through our paces by the, the then sort of head trainer at Golf Australia up and down these enormous sand dunes, these like 60-foot sand dunes. Cam and I were both being flogged by this trainer. Um, this is all in the, in the purpose of, with the purpose of basically hardening up Cam and, and seeing whether he had, um, I suppose, enough kind of mental strength to, to keep plowing on and also in the, with the aim of educating me somehow. But basically, we bonded over that. Uh, about We bonded over almost throwing up, like trying to get up these sand dunes. And then essentially, the, the powers that be said, look, you guys are in the same state. Nick, you seem to know what you're doing. Cam, you're a really good player. So, um, so why don't you start working together and we'll basically fund it. So Cam, it was a no-brainer for Cam, I think. He started working with, with myself. It was being funded by Golf Australia. And so that's where we started, essentially. And what age was that when you first started working with him? So Cam was 16 at that point. Gotcha. What did you start doing knowing where he wanted to go? He's already super elite, yeah. knowing he obviously wanted to keep playing. What were some of the first things that you worked on or, or what was the process that you went through mm -hmm. with him? So Cam was obviously a, a phenomenal talent and his his real strength lay in his his wedge play and his short game and his putting. So he was um, he was a pretty short hitter. He wasn't a big kid. He was pretty small and wiry. And um, his priorities at that point were to try and sort out his postural issues. He had some really, some really funky postural issues, some adaptations to hitting lots of golf balls. And he was experiencing sort of pain discomfort on a fairly regular basis that he was trying to manage in his own way. So first priority was, okay, let's sort your posture out. Let's give you a skill set where you can manage your own body on the road. Because even then he was traveling and playing domestically and internationally six months of the year he was literally like never at high school and he had just full-on golf commitments um, all the time and so he needed some strategies to help make sure that his his posture was in a good place and that he was taking care of the areas that were getting habitually tight as an adaptation to hitting lots of balls and traveling a lot basically so we would do um, self-release techniques with foam rollers and spiky balls um, stretching and then sort of postural restoration type exercises where we would stimulate the deep muscle system to try and get that working and hold his posture in place so then his his more sort of superficial movement muscles could could quieten down switch off become less hypertonic and he could function better and, and move better in his swing as well explain to me this whole posture thing maybe like what is good posture why is bad posture bad um mm. i don't know the basics <laughs> basics of that right <laughs> yeah sure so um Posture is, is a highly individual thing. A good posture for someone might be a bad posture for someone else. But you, you're basically looking to, or at least I am looking to try and bring people back to a somewhat neutral position where they're, 
they've got three curves established in their spine, the, the cervical, the thoracic, and the lumbar. And it almost looks like a, a bit of an S shape. I'm, I'm looking for their shoulders to be sort of relaxed and down. I'm looking for their shoulder blades to be hugged into their rib cage so they're nice and stable and sitting there. And then I'm looking for the, the pelvis and hips to be organized in a nice neutral position as well. From there, people can generally move a lot better, both in the gym, in general life, and also they can generally move better in their golf swing as well. You need to be a little bit careful. You need to individualize your approach because drastically charging after a postural restoration that you think is good for the person might have detrimental effects to the way they move in their golf swing. So working alongside his coach at this point was really important to try and make sure that we weren't going to do anything that was going to take him backwards in his golf swing but with the aim of trying to make him basically a better functioning human. And so you're focused on that. Is this something where it's like, all right, we do this three months and done? Or is this something that's still, I don't know, is this 10 years later or eight years, <laughs> yeah. uh, eight years along? Yeah, so some of the things we took care of and they've basically been able to, they were, they were relatively short-term fixes. And some of them are just postural habits that, that can sort of still has to do daily maintenance on when you're playing an open chain sport like golf and you're traveling a lot and perhaps cam isn't the most conscious of people when he's away from the golf or training environment so he doesn't necessarily think about his posture a huge amount but things creep back in so you know he gets tight pecs he gets a, he gets a tight neck which pushes his, his head forward and that has that has some knock-on effects so when his when his chin gets pushed forward or his head position goes forward and especially his right pec and rotator cuff get tight that drags his right shoulder down and inwardly rotated, which then has effects down the chain, down his arm and, and basically to club face where, so you imagine that that shoulder sort of turned inward and, and down and depressed. If you were to do that with your arm, if you were to rotate your, your shoulder inward and down, you'll see that your hand will turn over. And if you imagine your club face, that's going to shut the club face down a lot. And that's what he fights. So when he gets in that position, it's set up. He rotates into his backswing. The arms move away from the body. His club face gets shut. And then he has to basically drop under a fair bit and really fight hard and rotate left hard through impact to try and counteract that that shut face. So if we can organize his head and especially that right shoulder to sit in a better position from the outset, he doesn't have to fight that movement pattern in his, in his swing. So what are the things that, if you make it over to the States or at a tournament or he's back in Australia, it, mm. what does a week look like working with him? What, like, are you with him every day? Is it, are you on the course with him or is it just in the gym? Like what, explain to, to us what like a mm. week is like. Yes. Yeah, so it's 2016, 2017. I was with him pretty much all the time. So you would, uh, you would normally travel on a Monday and there would be a little bit of so postural restoration or massage work on a on a Monday night normally after the travel, depending on how far you went. If you were only going from like Tampa to Orlando, it wasn't a big deal. But if you were flying halfway across the country with connections or even internationally, then that was a, a big priority. Then Tuesday would be um, normally uh, playing holes, and I would basically be with Cam, you know, from essentially when he went out, first went out to the golf course to when we were finished at night. And so it'd be a warm up before practice, which would be some self massage stuff, basically foam rolling and spiky balling through the, through the legs, through the hips, through the back, through those all important pecs and rotator cuff that I talked about a little bit in the neck. Then it would be into some, um, some 
basic stretching and, and that I tried to avoid doing lots of assisted stretching. I tried to get him to stay consistent to the kind of stretches and movements that he could do by himself without me because I wasn't going to be there you know, all the time. And I knew that I was going to taper back my, my contact with him as well over the, over the coming years. So trying to keep him basically independent, I suppose, and, and self and, and not reliant on me. So that would be the stretches. And then we do some, some postural activation stuff. So that would involve putting on the, the gravity fit T pro especially, and then a, a resistance band, a lateral resistance band around the ankles or the knees and basically getting the two key areas for cam posturally is is glutes and hips kind of and the muscles that surround the the pelvis nice and activated and then getting the muscles that control the t-spine setting and the the shoulder blades sort of stabilizes getting them fired up as well and then from there it would be out onto the golf course yeah play holes then there would normally be a training session after after the practice and and uh, practice round so that would involve basically during tournament weeks it was usually speed work so moving what I call speed strength work, which is essentially moving moderate load as, as fast as possible. That would be combined with some more mobility and some more kind of stability exercise as well, depending on what the priorities were at that particular time, that particular training block. So that would be, geez, this, yeah, that would be Tuesday. Sounds like a lot when I'm saying it like this. <laughs> Poor bloke. Um, oh boy. <laughs> so then uh, Wednesday would either be pro-am or practice, depending if he was in the pro-am or not. Same, same structure again. Then we would look at um, Thursday, but obviously be first tournament round, same warm-up protocol before the, the first uh, tournament round. And then afterwards, depending if it was a morning round, we would train in the afternoon. If it was an afternoon round, we would wait until Friday to train. So we basically, we never really did much in the way of training before a round. It was just warm-ups. And, um, and after the round, after the morning round would be the opportunity we would take to train either thursday or friday depending on how the draw panned out and then the weekend was a little bit of kind of wait and see so if the cut was made then we would basically just do maintenance work and massage throughout the weekend if the cut was missed then we'd take the opportunity on saturday to do a a big you know big training session basically all right so we've heard the stories we've heard some examples and anytime you sit down and, and talk with a coach or in nick's case someone that's working on the fitness side of things there is always the the story, there's always this anecdote of what they're doing with the player and the steps that they've gone through. But behind that, what's really interesting to me is the conceptual or the strategy. What is the framework that someone is thinking through when making changes, when they're working with somebody, why are they doing what they do? I think these are the important questions that we always need to ask. If, you, if you're ever working with an instructor, if you're ever sitting down to talk with someone is, why did you do that? What are you working on? What's the process that you're going through and what's the framework that you're working inside of? You've got to assess, you've got to find out what's, uh, what the priorities are for that particular person. And it's important to compare what they think are their priorities and what their team think are their priorities and, and see if that matches up with their, what you think with their physical assessment. So yeah, you start off with that subjective assessment where you just go through a simple set of questions that basically focus on training and injury history, the time they've got available for their for their, how much they can train, how, how frequently and, and the duration of the sessions, what kind of facilities they're going to access to, and then you set some basic goals as well. So that's the subjective, and that's as important as anything else. That, that gives me some pretty rich information. Then the, the postural stuff, I, I basically take photos of, uh, of posture in front, behind, of both sides, both in standing and in, and in setup. 
Then I would do a musculoskeletal assessment, which is basically looking at some ranges of motion and stability in, in those key major joints. It's an ankle, hip, three different segments of the spine, lumbar, thoracic, and cervical, shoulders, and, and wrists. Then I'd look at, um, and that's for, that's for range of motion, and that's for localized stability as well. That's picking up any sort of joint restriction or, or dysfunction is a major red flag. Then I'd look at um, testing some stability and balance, and I use a, a protocol developed by this Aussie company, Gravity Fit, called the Core Body Benchmark. It basically it like measures the player's ability to hold good posture, balance, and stability, starting off with simple movements and moving through to, to some more complex movements. And that's, um, that's an objective measure as well. So they've got a way of basically measuring that objectively, which is quite cool because it's quite hard to, I think it's quite hard to measure stability and balance from, a, from an objective standpoint. And then it, whenever you make an objective measure, obviously it's easier to set goals around that. And for people, especially for better players who are often really driven by wanting to better themselves and, and they, they often react well to numbers and, and goals set around numbers. Then we look at some basic strength and power. So you look at um, initially in the initial testing, I would look at strength relative to body weight in a in a squat movement, a push movement, a pull movement, and a core and brace hold. And then as you get down the track with reassessments, we look at measuring strength from from a loaded point where we look at anywhere from one to to five rep max in those same movements: squat, push, pull, and that brace. And then I also measure a vertical leap and, and um, a rotational velocity so rotational speed movement as well yeah then the next stage once you've collected all that information is basically to write a report so you get a score in those in in five areas you get a score out of 100 in uh, mobility stability that core body benchmark i talked about you get it in that basic strength and you get it in power as well and then i basically collect all that information write the report and then send it out to the key stakeholders with the with that player as well so you send it out to generally player coach caddy if they're interested <laughs> often they're not <laughs> and then um, managerial people who are interested as well so everyone's got an idea of what the physical priorities are for the player and and what the pathway is moving forward what area of that is most often missed when starting with a fitness person i think um it's difficult to say uh, i think lots of different health practitioners would have different approaches to this and it's not for me to say necessarily whether my method's better than another. I think there's not often a huge amount of focus on posture and postural control, probably because it's quite hard to measure and it's quite difficult to sort of understand as well. And up until up until I started doing work with Gravity Fit back when I was in the Gulf Australia National Program, it was um, I hadn't found a method that, that really did a, a really good job of, of quantifying and measuring posture and postural control and stability through the spine and major joints. So I think that's probably the area that gets that gets left out. And I think for me, it's really key because if, you, if, you, if you're not set up to the golf ball with good posture and, and you can't move through the, the swing with good postural control, then for me, it limit, limits your ability to repeat quality movement over time and, and prevent injury. Okay, so once you have the assessment, what's next? Yeah, so assessment report, um, and then it's um, me. It's up to me to build a training program based off the information that I've I've basically recorded. So the the way I generally write a training program is a, a typical session. You're looking at generally three to four strength sessions per week, with additional and posture work. That's in an off week, and then in a tournament week, you would probably drop that down to to 
two strength sessions per week with, again, that additional mobility and posture work. A typical session would look a little bit like a warm-up to start off with. As I said, foam roll and spiky ball, we've talked about that. A short kind of cardio session and then five or six movements that would would help warm up the major joints and and muscles. Then you'd do a little stability section where you'd have one or two exercises that activate the key stability and postural muscles. The warm-up section that I talked talk to you about before where Cam was doing his little postural setting, those kind of exercises are perfect for this particular part. It's generally a, This section is generally like a primer for your strength work that's about to come. Yeah, so then you've got four or five exercises in your strength section that are designed to elicit a strength adaptation all the time whilst you know challenging the ability to hold posture and balance that's that's absolutely key and then you would have core like a specific kind of targeted core exercises one or two of those and then some largely sort of static stretches to finish off with mobility and then um, with a, a more advanced player in between stability and strength you would have some power exercises as well so usually something that requires vertical force some kind of jumping movement and then usually one that that uh, requires rotational force, so some kind of fast ballistic rotational movement as well. So that's my that's my general structure. I don't deviate from that too much um, unless there's a, a special request from the client where they're like, I've only got 30 minutes, you know, I've, that's all I can dedicate and I've only got this equipment. In that case, I'll basically condense that a lot more into a more circuit type, a circuit type session where you're trying to hit everything all at once if you can. How long would someone stick to a training program that you set out? Is it like four weeks and then reassess? Is it two months? Like how does the, um, you know, you're watching the the athlete grow or develop and make changes and making changes based on that. How does that work? Yeah. I mean, in an ideal world, you'd, you'd change the program every, every four weeks, but often tournament schedules and life just generally gets in the way of completing sessions as they should be with the with the sort of highest intensity possible and the and the sort of adherence to the schedule. So what I've done more so in the last few years is actually tracked progress as I've gone as the athlete has progressed by tracking their velocity, like how fast they can complete certain key movements. And when you start to see uh, like a chronic adaptation, so when you start to see those the speeds that they're able to complete those quality those key movements in when you see that those speeds come up and stay up for a period of time then that's the stimulus to say okay now you're ready for something else so in an ideal world i'd I'd be doing that with the athlete on a regular basis but that obviously involves me being present for pretty much every training session or them recording the information for themselves so that's in an ideal world i would do that and that's worked really well with with cameron we've sort of basically stuck to the same program until he's essentially earned the right through demonstrating progression to move on to the next the next program when you have uh, one of your students they're working out they're they're going through training session like what kind of state are you looking for them to be in like what are some of the characteristics when you look at them like are they drenched in sweat are they like moving <laughs> around all the time like what what are some of the characteristics of that training session that you put together that can vary quite largely, I suppose, depending on the scenario. But um, I'm not trying to flog them to within an inch of their life. Like, like, I, I want them to be able to finish a session and then recover. You know, an hour later, they should be able to go out and practice, hit balls, you know, do other things. They shouldn't be like dead and then for the rest of the day, then sore for the next three. 
I'm not trying to elicit a huge amount of hypertrophy or muscle growth in my clients generally, unless they are a younger junior who really needs it. The idea is that we're, we're trying to get the person to move better. If we can elicit a neural strength adaptation, that's awesome. And especially if we can elicit a neural power adaptation, then that's absolutely ideal. So if, if we can get them moving better and also moving faster, then I've seen that have a really powerful transference to, to the application in the golf swing context. So, yeah, I, I want them to be worked but not absolutely flogged. We, we use a, a, a scale of how hard a session is called a, a rate of perceived exertion, which is an RPE. And so I'll take that after each session and basically say, look, what was your, how would you rate that session? Um, out of 10, 10 being like the hardest thing you've ever done and one being going for a stroll in the park. And then you basically take that number. So say it's, okay, it's a seven. You multiply that by the duration of the session. So say it was a 60 minute session. You times seven by, by 60, you get uh, 420. <laughs> and um, basically you use that as your, your total load for this session. And then you track that from a week to week basis. And then you measure that against some other metrics that you can record like wellness, wellness metrics. So you ask them on a daily basis, how much energy they have, how they're feeling, um, how well they slept, etc., and then you can you can look for a relationship between the two. So you can look for a relationship between training load and, for example, energy levels. And if you see the training load is goes up for whatever reason, and then the energy levels come down, and if that also gets correlated with a drop in performance, then you know you're pushing the athlete too hard and you need to back off. You can get really complex with that stuff. That's like proper exercise science, strength and conditioning things um but i've found that really beneficial for me to know how hard to push the athlete and also to get the athlete more aware of of how they're feeling and how they're managing themselves on a daily basis as well what do you think the mistakes that most people make are when you know thinking about that conversation or that concept like yeah where do most people err on i think most people just try and go hell for leather and try and make big gains in a short period of time and they probably have their expectations set a little bit too high. So they'll, they'll chase the gain that they're wanting to, they'll look at, they'll look at the outcome. Say, I want to hit the ball further. And they'll say, okay, for that, I need to increase my strength. And so I'm just going to go and smash myself in the gym. And they sort of throw caution to the wind, perhaps don't use the best form and technique, perhaps don't have a long-term view of development over the course of months and years they see it as more of a short-term fix and then they either injure themselves or they they're so sore that they can't complete their skill the skill part of the, the sport effectively and uh, and they get pretty frustrated and give it away quite quickly i think probably so to answer your question in one word it'd be yeah patience would be the, <laughs> the thing that people that people yeah. actually overlook no absolutely and then what kind of gear are, or typically do you have people using in a, in a training session? Yeah, so I think um, on tour, it varied a fair bit. You're obviously in a different city each week. So I used to seek out good gyms. So I used to jump online and then basically ring around and try and get a private gym that we could get access to for the week. That was the ideal scenario. I'd sort of set up camp there and the guys would come and see me there. Sometimes you had to use hotel gyms. Sometimes you had to use the trailer, which the trailer is good for warm-ups, but not a lot else. It's a great facility don't get me wrong and it's extremely convenient for warm up and cool down and stuff but for example it, the ceiling's so low you can't jump so that's a major 
that's a major problem for my programs because there's a fair amount of jumping and vertical force production stuff that we do. So um, the facility would vary from week to week, but essentially the key gear I'd be looking for would be, obviously, you travel with your foam roller, your spiky ball, your gravity fit equipment. Those would be your key things that you would travel with yourself. And then you would seek out a facility that had access to uh, a squat rack, barbells, so decent weight, a decent sort of volume of dumbbells, and and then some nice open space to move in. So the equipment would be fairly minimal on oh, resistance bands as well, like big sort of 41-inch power bands. That would be the probably the key stuff I'd be looking for. Perfect. That makes sense. Oh, and something else, sorry. Yeah. The, in terms of tracking, I, I've talked about velocity quite a lot, and, and some of the listeners might, might be wondering how I'm actually quantifying how fast someone's moving. I use a, I use a product called a push band, which has completely revolutionized the way I train people. Um, basically, it's a, just a, a small device. It's got an accelerometer and a gyroscope built into it. It straps onto either the forearm or the, uh, or the waist, and it hooks up to an app, and it basically gives you velocity and power outputs for you know, a, a whole range of different gym-based movements. You can also do a free movement a free movement in there as well. So you can kind of say, oh, okay, I want to move in this certain way and it'll basically tell you how fast you're moving, which being able to quantify that is, has been absolutely brilliant for me. It's helped inform so many of my decisions around exercise selection, especially load selection. And um, it's actually made my job a lot easier. I don't have to make huge, big, long periodization plans based on how I think the athlete is going to adapt because I'm measuring the athlete on a daily basis and watching how they react in a live scenario so you can your your decisions can be informed on a much more short-term basis which is which is really useful in a sport like golf because because the schedule is so variable and the and the travel aspect and the i think the the, the neural aspect as well make periodization and long-term planning quite difficult so yeah that that push band has, has been uh, an absolute game changer for me awesome and Give me like the the rundown on gravity fit and like how you're using that and why you found that valuable with students. Yeah, so as I mentioned, gravity fit basically the job it does for me is it gives the student an awareness of postural feedback. So it gives them awareness of of how they're holding their posture. It also gives them what we call gentle axial load, which is um, basically if you can think of load being pushed from the distal segment to the proximal segment of the body so from from out to in so down through the hand and down through the head and and to a certain extent up through the feet towards the spine and that axial load has been proven to to stimulate the deep muscle system and the key deep muscle system that we think is responsible for really stabilizing joints and, and, and stabilizing your spine and then the third benefit you get from that gravity fit gear and the third application is that coaches have got skill coaches have been showing us which is it's really useful for training movement patterns and and really try really, really useful for ingraining movements that the coach wants the, the athlete to make in their in their golf swing so those two things that the push bands i said the velocity stuff and then the gravity fit equipment that helps to train your posture prevent injury and also train your movement patterns have been the two the two key things i think that i've really embraced away from what you would say is is traditional strength and conditioning training 
Nick mentioned this thing called Gravity Fit in there. Uh, it's a really interesting tool. I got one and I was fascinated by it. I actually went and saw a PT near me and his name is Jeremiah Hale in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And we shot some videos to show you kind of what this thing is and how it works. I think it's really good because a lot of times when we talk with the biomechanists or swing instructors, a lot of what it comes down to is some of this postural work, um, getting better at our at the core, uh, working on our core. And a lot of that is hard to do. However, these tools that Gravity Fit has give some really good feedback and, and help build strength in those areas. So I think they're really interesting. Uh, we did some videos. They're on the website, golfsciencelab.com, along with the post. They're linked up. Make sure to check those out because I think it's kind of a, a cool thing that you might be able to use. And before you do that, though, I want to listen and finish with this final word from Nick kind of to wrap up this episode. I think... Um fixing broken stuff would be would be definitely the first place to start if as i've alluded to before if you if you have pain then that is going to inhibit a whole bunch of stuff right throughout your body and it's going to stop you doing things in the right way so if you try and push through pain in order to try and gain strength or power or speed or whatever it might be that's on a fast track to getting more pain basically so first step is getting out of pain that's absolutely critical and seeing a really good Physical therapist would be my my first my first stop there. Really good physical therapist or chiropractor to try and make sure that you are you are getting a good assessment and you're having that pathology sorted before you try and do anything else. From there, once you're pain free, I, I like to use a kind of scaled approach where you have to really master the first level in order to then get access to the second, third, and fourth levels. So you would start off by basically making sure that you've got your posture organised properly and you've got basic good range of motion and stability around your major joints once you've got that down pat then you can start to look at okay now can i take that postural control and can i take that mobility and stability in my major joints and can i start performing more complex movements under some moderate load which i call basic strength and then from there you can move on to okay let's try and elicit some more maximal strength adaptations so done your basic strength okay let's add more load and get some a, a bigger strength adaptation from there. Then you would move on to, okay, now let's try and move things fast. Let's try and move moderate loads fast, try and get power adaptation. So that would be the, the kind of tiered approach I would look to take. And one, each tier basically depends on a good level of competency from the tier below. If the tier below is, is somewhat unshaky, so for example, if you try and train your basic strength, which is the second tier, without having half decent postural control and, and decent joint function, then you're going to fall down really quickly. You're going to put us up. You're going to put a very relatively low ceiling on your ability to generate that basic strength because you can't really move or control your body that well. And the same goes for power. If you try and if you try and train speed and power outright initially without a foundation of, of good strength underneath it, then again, you're, you're going to hit ceiling really quickly and you're going to plateau really quickly because you don't have the foundation in place. So I would say, um, yeah, take care of pain first, then move into postural stuff, basic strength, some more maximal strength, and then up into, into speed and power last. Thank you so much to Nick for joining us. Make sure to say thanks to him and thanks for sharing all of this great info with us. If you are listening to this and you are not subscribed to the podcast, make sure to hit subscribe if you're listening in Apple Podcasts. Also, 
If you have an Amazon Alexa, something really interesting, we made this Amazon Alexa skill. You can go in and ask it questions and you can get relevant podcasts for what you want to learn about. Check it out. Also, head over to golfsciencelab.com slash insider to get access to our content first. Stay up to date on everything that's going on as we create more content and document golf science. The episode was written and hosted by me, Cordy Walker. You can follow me on Twitter at Cordy Walker and was edited, mixed, and produced by Just Hit Publish Productions. Thank you.